You're listening to our podcast on meditation and neuropsychology. Uh, my name is Peter Nguyen. And I'm Taylor Kuhn. And we are graduate students at the University of Florida. Department of Clinical and Health Psychology. And in the uh, neuropsychology track. And uh, so when one thinks about neuropsychology or science of the brain, meditation is probably not one of the first things to come to mind. In the sciences, we're used to concrete and well-defined constructs, you know, tangible results, observable evidence, uh, what have you. And for many people, meditation is still this very abstract and amorphous concept that really has no place in science. However, the past decade has seen an incredible increase in the acceptance and popularity of the scientific exploration of meditation. In fact, I think uh, Time Magazine featured the science of meditation on its cover in 2003. So it definitely seems to be breaking free of this uh, new age mumbo jumbo label and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, being able to apply proper scientific uh, techniques and studies to, to validate and show that meditation is indeed helpful and beneficial. And one of those main scientific studies that's been investigating meditation is neuropsychology. Now, neuropsychology as a field is very much associated with the study of cognitions, how we think. Uh, neuropsychology is the study of the brain as the basis for behavior, cognition, and emotion. It is a scientific field that uses a medical model, meaning it studies clinical patients as well as healthy individuals, to try and understand what parts of the brain are responsible for things like speech, abstract thought, memory, or problem solving. Neuropsychology is also a clinical discipline that uses the information from this research to help patients. Uh, this is done both through assessing people's cognitive abilities, like their ability to think, their ability to remember. It is also done through various forms of psychotherapy and these different forms, in their own way, seek to help restore patients' thinking ability or healthy emotional functioning. And it can be argued <clears throat> that meditation may represent yet an even higher form of cognitive process, the apex of brain evolution, a uniquely human function with the potential to transcend the typical trappings of the mind. And among other things, meditation demonstrates that we have the capability to consciously alter our physical and mental health, and as well as achieve conscious states routinely ignored or unknown to us in our daily lives. In the current scientific literature, there's some pretty solid evidence on the physical and psychological benefits of meditation. In addition to that, there's also a growing body of data on what's actually going on in the brain during meditation, such that we are now beginning to have a better understanding of the actual brain mechanisms associated with meditation. But before we get into that, I think an important point to address is on how we operationally define or classify meditation. And this is a pretty important question in rigorous scientific investigations. So what is meditation? Admittedly, that's a pretty daunting question when you realize that meditation or meditative practices have been around for hundreds, thousands of years and span numerous varied cultures and religions. 
And if we infer meaning from etymology, uh, bhavana, which is the Pali word for meditation in early Buddhist writings, can be roughly translated as to cultivate or to develop. Now the Latin roots of the word meditation mean to think or to contemplate. However, it is unlikely that a single unitary definition could possibly describe all of the current meditative practices in a satisfactory manner. On the other hand, uh, in order for scientific knowledge to progress, it is important that we formulate concrete and testable concepts to work with, and therefore, for our purposes, meditation can be generally conceived as a practice in which one trains the mind and or induces a mode of consciousness to realize some benefit. And in the scientific literature, most meditative practices can be practically divided into one of two types, either a concentrative, uh, focused attention form of meditation, or an open monitoring or mindfulness approach to meditation. Now, focused attention practices primarily involve concentrating your attention on a specific internal or external stimulus, such as the breath or a candle, all the while ignoring other stimuli. Now, open monitoring styles of meditation involve uh, adapting an open and accepting attentional state on all incoming thoughts, emotions, and, and stimuli from moment to moment without placing a specific focus on any one particular stimuli. And the various different forms of meditation are conceived to fall somewhere along this spectrum uh, between these two classifications. And as these two styles appear to differ on how they direct attention or cognitive resources, it would make sense that perhaps there are unique brain activity features and mechanisms associated with them. Unfortunately, uh, many current studies do not differentiate the different forms of meditation and often pool together a variety of uh, meditative styles to examine some outcome, with the underlying rationale that all forms of meditation have the general common goal of regulating attention and developing an attitude of detachment from one's thoughts. Now, this may be sufficient for studies involving specific outcomes, but it is important to keep these differences in mind, especially as it pertains uh, to studies involving brain activation during meditation. Currently, it appears that the vast majority of scientific data on meditation are centered on the clinical benefits and the various outcomes. Uh, understandably, people probably wouldn't be as interested in the, the neural underpinnings of meditation if it hasn't actually been shown to be beneficial. And so these studies are typically done by uh, comparing a group of meditation-trained participants with a control group who is ideally matched on everything except that critical component of meditation. And a lot of this work has been done using uh, meditation-based treatment programs such as mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, which feature an open monitoring mindfulness-based meditation component. Now, although continued studies are always going to be needed, uh, particularly with more rigorous methodologies, the current data suggests that meditation is indeed effective at improving a whole variety of both physiological and psychological factors such as uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression, uh, stress response, uh, and, and pain. And it's also been found to promote empathy and increase 
overall positive mood states and uh, overall psychological well-being. These results were seen in a variety of populations, including uh, regular community adults, college students, uh, healthcare professionals, fibromyalgia patients, can cancer patients, uh, patients with MS, uh, depressed people, substance abuse patients, and a whole uh, variety of other populations. And so all of this suggests that the effects of meditation are generalizable and that you don't necessarily have to be uh, some volunteer undergraduate college student uh, participating in a study, uh, nor do you have to be suffering from depression to actually reap the benefits of it. So now I'm going to touch uh, upon some of the cognitive components and brain regions associated with meditation. And this will be a pretty cursory overview, though, so if you're interested in it, I encourage you to look into some of the original research articles as they definitely go into a level of detail not found in this podcast. And of the various cognitive domains studied by neuropsychologists, intuitively, attention would probably play an important role in the practice of meditation. Now, all forms of medita meditation seem to share the commonality that some form of attention is being diverted, changed, uh, refocused uh, either towards a more specific and focal stimulus or a less specific open monitoring state or really anything in between. And as a cognitive construct, attention is actually pretty complex and intricate and can be defined in a number of different ways. Some of the more prominent theories on attention hold that it can be divided into two main systems, a top-down self-driven attention system and a bottom-up externally driven or stimulus-driven attention system. Now the top-down system better represents what we mean when we say pay attention as it is a focused and voluntary response to our environment. And now this type of top-down attention system would correspond to some of the more focused meditation practices. On the other hand, the bottom-up attention system is actually more of an automatic and reflexive attentional system that is on the lookout for things in the environment to happen unexpectedly, which subsequently would pull our attention to focus on it. So in other words, our focus isn't being consciously driven, Rather, it's being pulled by whatever might be going on in our external world. Now, this form of meditation corresponds with the more open monitoring, mindfulness-based meditative practices. And so to recap, we have a system whereby we make a conscious decision on what to focus on, and another system that is involuntary and guided by our environment. However, the reality is that meditative practices likely involve interactions and involvement from both systems and therefore it's more difficult to tease apart the relative contributions of these systems but what we do know though is that attention as a whole appears to be driven by an entire network of brain regions including the frontal lobes and that's where those uh, higher order integrating executive processes are, are generally located uh, the parietal lobes which are of right behind the frontal lobes and those are important for uh, for sensory information uh, 
and the basal ganglia, which is a more developmentally primitive set of structures located deep within the brain. So yes, attention appears to be a complex process that is being operated on by regions across the whole brain. But still, it is the frontal lobes that are most commonly targeted as being the main churning force, or the conductor of attention. And so it goes without saying that attention is an absolute essential part of our being. William James even stated that attention is the very root of judgment, character, and will. With meditation being a practice rooted in attention and awareness, the question is whether meditation training can actually improve attention. Now, a study revealed that Tibetan Buddhist monks performed, a signific performed significantly better on a task of focused attention compared to people who did not meditate. Now, further support was found in another study done in 2007 that compared two groups. One group underwent an eight-week course in mindfulness-based practices, while another group did not. Now, on attentional measures, the group that underwent the meditation training performed significantly better than the control group. Now, overall, the current data suggests that meditation can, in fact, improve attention, and that this effect isn't limited to just expert monks who've been training their whole life. And now, with these various accounts of meditation affecting or improving attention, it would be interesting to examine how this dynamic is manifested in the brain. Now, in the olden days, one of the only ways to examine this would have been to physically examine and compare the brains of people after they've died. Now, perhaps uh, comparing a person who meditated a lot with someone who didn't. Luckily, it ain't the olden days, and we have a bunch of tools, gadgets, devices, at our disposal that allow us to look at and measure the brain while it's still in someone's head. Now, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, uh, functional MRI, EEG, transcortical magnetic stimulation, nuclear imaging, these are all brain imaging techniques that could help provide some insights into the actual dynamics between meditation and the brain. Indeed, there have been a number of studies that have specifically sought to examine this relationship between the brain and meditation. Uh, there was a study done in 2010 where the investigators examined brain differences between people who were considered long-term meditators and people who did not meditate. And using SPECT imaging, the results showed that the long-term meditators, compared to those who did not meditate, had higher activity in the frontal lobes. Now these results are also in line with another study done in 2003 where they measured brain activity using EEG and this was done in people uh, both before undergoing an eight-week meditation training program and four months after. And uh, this was uh, done comparing a control group that did not undergo that training program. And as hypothesized the results showed increased frontal activity in the group that underwent the meditation training. Now these findings of increased activity in the frontal lobe can be interpreted in multiple ways, but it would make sense that meditation is acting upon or perhaps modulating and strengthening regions in the brain that are associated with attention. And so to summarize these findings, 
It appears as though meditation not only results in improved attention as measured on various behavioral tasks, but it also uh, improves corresponding, involves corresponding changes in the brain. Now, regions in the brain that have been implicated with attention appear to undergo lasting changes as evidenced by both uh, relatively brief training and long-term practice. In addition to attention and the frontal lobes, another region in the brain that may have a unique involvement with meditation are the parietal lobes. Now, in general, the parietal lobes are responsible for processing visual spatial information and uh, giving us our sense of orientation in space and time. It's responsible for processing information about our body and its location in space and our ability to distinguish between objects and exert grasping actions towards objects in visual space. And so intuitively, it follows that the functions of the parietal lobe may be critical for distinguishing between the self and the external world. Now, in many forms of meditation, a common thread uh, in meditative practices is the facilitation of a oneness or tranquility with all internal and external stimuli, both in the immediate practice and as a long-term goal. Now, here is a quote from Dr. Michael uh, J. Baim, a physician and meditation researcher and practitioner, describing what he feels during a uh, peak moment when he practices Tibetan Buddhist meditation relaxing of the dualistic mind and an intense feeling of love. I felt a profound letting go of the boundaries around me and a connection with some kind of energy and state of being that had a quality of clarity, transparency, and joy. I felt a deep and profound sense of connection to everything recognizing that there never was a true separation at all. And here is another quote describing an experience associated with meditation, uh, this time by Dr. James Austin, a well-known neurologist and Zen practitioner who has written several books on Zen and the brain. I dropped into an alternate state of consciousness in which my physical sense of self dropped down of the center of my awareness and I also entered a state in which there was no sound, a state in which the vision was blacker than black and a state which was later permeated by a sense of bliss. Now it is hypothesized that the act of meditation blocks out the sensory and cognitive input into the parietal lobes, resulting in this sense of no space and no time, which is so often described during these peak experiences in meditation. Now, Indeed, current studies typically find an increase in activation in the frontal lobes, which corresponds with the high degree of concentration and attention involved, uh, and a decrease in parietal lobe activation. Now, this fits in with the hypothesis that 
sensory information in the parietal lobe is being altered during meditation. Now stated otherwise, increased activity in the parietal lobe can be inferred as promoting a more self-referential, top-down attentional state, or egocentric behavior. In contrast, reduced activity of the parietal lobe may result in a more uh, other-centered or bottom-up allocentric attentional state. And by facilitating this bottom-up attentional state, the boundaries between the self and other are blurred, resulting in a feeling of oneness with the universe. And for many people, that sense of oneness is really the absolute goal and purpose of meditation. It is a sensation that has not only been tied with religious and spiritual experiences, but with a general feeling of unity and, and uh, appreciation for how all things and all people are intrinsically connected, and perhaps cultivating this sense of oneness for all things and all people uh, around us may eventually promote more compassion and empathy in this world. So I'm joined today by Dr. Lewis Ritz. Dr. Ritz is a professor here at the University of Florida in the Department of Neuroscience. He is affiliated with the College of Medicine and the McKnight Brain Institute and serves as the director of the Center for Spirituality and Health. He is the director for the uh, medical neuroscience course and has taught classes including neurotheology and spirituality and health. Dr. Ritz, thank you again uh, for joining us today. Peter, thank you for inviting me to speak. Well, to start us off, can you briefly tell us a little bit about your experience and interest uh, with meditation? My interest in meditation began many years ago when I was in college, approximately 40 years ago, when I became interested in spirituality in general and in uh, transcendent or mystical experiences that uh, people were talking about. And uh, I've often wondered about the role of the brain in these meditation experiences. And it led me to start practicing meditation, practice, practice every day, and uh, been involved in meditation, a focused type of meditation for the last 40 years. And so by now it's well documented that meditation can improve many physiological health factors such as uh, blood pressure, stress, what have you. Now aside from the general health benefits, do you see any additional benefits that meditation may have on the average everyday person? Well first of all, getting control of our stress is, is a very important aspect of the health benefits. There's All of us have stress every day in our lives, whether it's from it's from work or from our families or from whatever uh, we're involved in and so being able to limit the stress will uh, first of all have a very important health benefit. Beyond that, uh, meditation can, can show us and help us uh, get control over our minds and our emotions. Meditation can help us, help show us when our minds are overactive, when, when our emotions are out of control. So uh, one of the goals of meditation is to be able to quiet the mind a little bit and calm our emotions. Uh, uh, and they're very, meditation can be a very powerful technique that can affect us in both areas. But ultimately, I feel that 
health and the word spirituality are synonymous and at a, the deepest level as we develop spiritually our health will improve in many different ways and it, you may not be able to cure cancer with meditation but you can certainly change your perspective on life which can uh, really liberate us from a lot of health problems Absolutely. So from what you described, it definitely has a lot of uh, far-reaching implications in, in uh, everyone's life. But now you've also spent a lot of time uh, working and educating medical students and uh, other students working in the medical field. Now, do you think there is a particular place for meditation with uh, future physicians and healthcare workers? Well, first of all, I agree with you that meditation can help everybody. They're, they're, the benefits are profound. Meditation is free. It uh, doesn't cost anything to do. We just need to put the effort in. We need to spend time at it. But uh, here at the University of Florida College of Medicine, we have started classes in meditation uh, for self-selected medical students. And now we've also expanded into the physician's assistance program. And I think meditation, first and foremost, can help young healthcare providers be uh, be more patient-centered and have better relations with their patients. Now, how can that happen? Well, uh, meditation can help the young healthcare providers be more focused, be more attentive. Attentive listening is critical. If we are distracted by uh, the past or the future, something we, we've done recently or something we're worried about in the future, we're not going to be able to be present with our, with our patients. So first and foremost, we learn to be present with the patients or clients. We learn to be attentive. We learn to be focused on them. And then a second aspect of this is that we begin to get self-reflective and we can begin to understand how we are reacting to patients or clients. And we can better understand our own limitations as we serve our patients or clients. So again, meditation can affect, uh, can help benefit the, uh, a young healthcare provider, whether it be a physician or a counselor, in many, uh, many different ways. So it's pretty clear that uh, meditation definitely has a lot of value. Uh, but now to switch gears a little bit and to uh, examine the, the role of meditation in the brain. So given your background and expertise with the brain, do you think that current scientific methods are a viable way of understanding that relationship between the brain and meditation? And in other words, can we use our knowledge of the brain to understand the mechanisms involved in meditation? And on the flip side, can our understanding of meditation provide insights into certain aspects of the brain? Well, the history of, of the science of meditation is very interesting. At first, we uh, were able to document, this, is, this goes back to the 1970s, and prior to that, we were able to document that there was some relaxation effects, benefits of meditation, and so the body was, was benefiting from it. And then more recently, science is beginning to show that there are changes in the brain uh, with meditation. Um, I th as we gain more and more powerful tools to study the brain, I think all of them will be used to help us understand what's going on with meditation. And to me, the most powerful science that we can use going forward is a, actually a combination of what I call the science of, of the subjective with the science of the objective. If we can 
have a person meditating or uh, doing some sort of task while, uh, while engaged in meditation, um, we can begin to understand objectively what's going on in the brain, but then we can also uh, query the person about uh, what is going on subjectively, what their experiences are, and we can begin to correlate an individual's experiences using all of the rigorous scientific methods at our control, correlate the subjective experience with the objective data that we get regarding the brains. And to me, that's going to be the most powerful science going forward. And finally, Dr. Ritz, what are the future directions that you would like to see in the scientific investigations of meditation? Uh, for example, if we are able to discover a, a, a circuit in the brain that's... Um, implicated with meditation, what should we do with it? Use it. <laughs> Use it or lose it. Uh, I think that meditation is the most important thing in each of our lives. I will uh, say that unequivocally, that we all need to learn to meditate, um, not only for simple health benefits, but ultimately I think that meditation is the high road to spirituality. It's the um, it's something that we need to be engaged in to make uh, a spiritual progress. And it will ultimately impact us in all of our worldly endeavors. Um, to talk about a brain circuit, I think the whole brain is a meditation circuit. Um, yes, the brain is used for a variety of things, and we use it for, for everything we do, we use large parts of the brain. But meditation, at least initially, is also using a large part of the brain, affecting or at least impacting large parts of the brain. And I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that um, the whole brain is our meditation circuit. We just need to be able to tune it, get it under control with practice, practice, practice. And by doing that, what is ultimately important is we will be able to change our thoughts. Working through the circuits of the brain, we'll be able to change our thoughts, which will change our behaviors, which in turn will enhance our lives. And not in physical and emotional realms, but also in spiritual realms. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Ritz. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you again for listening to uh, part one of our podcast on meditation in the brain. Um, in this section, we discussed some of the different forms of meditation as well as the health benefits uh, associated with meditation. And we also talked about uh, the various brain regions that have been shown to be associated with uh, the act of meditation as well. Um, stay tuned for part two. Where we'll be discussing the ability of meditation to alter the way the brain modulates behavior and alter the way different parts of the brain modulate each other through changes in brain structure and brain connectivity. Thank you for listening.